Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt O'Sullivan. Uh, like you said, I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. And Cameron, uh, our lead pastor, asked me to tell you that he did not jump town. He is uh, filling in the pulpit at, I believe it's Four Corners for a friend. Um, so he is preaching, just not with us this morning. Um, and as the kids are making their way out, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. And so... <clears throat> As you're turning there, just to bring everyone up to speed, this morning is the last sermon we have in this series called Grace in Unexpected Places. And so we've been looking at key passages, one passage from each of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch. And we've been doing this mainly because a lot of times when we read the Old Testament, we can get sideways in many different ways. And probably one of the biggest ways that maybe we wrestle with in our own hearts is we read through the Bible um, or as we engage it in our culture is the idea that God is somehow different in the Old Testament than, is, than as he is in the New Testament. And usually that comes out like this, where we say, well, God is kind of mean and harsh and scary in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, that's when he's full of love and grace. And the goal with this sermon series has been to show us and remind us that, no, the story of God's love for his people has been going since the beginning of the scriptures. And that no matter what page, what verse we read, God's grace is on full display and so, for example, in Genesis, we saw that even in the wake of the fall, which was when sin and death was unleashed on the world through human rebellion, God's grace was there, and he launched the plan of redemption right away. And in Exodus, we saw that God called Moses, and Moses was a man who knew his brokenness, and yet God said, I've got this work for you, and I will be with you as you do this. I will equip you for it. And then in Leviticus, we saw how Aaron and the entire nation of Israel, they had worshiped a golden calf. They had committed adultery against God, in essence. And yet God brought them back. He gave them the means of grace and restored them to worship. And then last week in Numbers, we saw how God was with his people in the wilderness. And that even as they continued to wrestle and struggle and fail in the face of sin, he gave them the, the bronze serpent that was lifted up, another means of grace for them to be saved. And he persisted with his people even in their sin. And now this morning, we're gonna to come to Deuteronomy, the last book in the Torah. We're gonna to see how God calls us to remember his grace throughout all of our lives. But before we get going, it's important, I think, to remember again, as we've been doing week in and week out, just to remember what we mean when we're talking about God's grace. Because we know usually that God's grace involves unmerited favor, that God does something good to us that we don't deserve. And it's that, but there's also more to it. It's not just measured by the blessings that God gives us. It's that, but it's also more. And in the same way, it's not just the measure of God's forgiveness of our sins. Grace involves that, but it also ultimately is God's faithful presence with us, his people, even though we don't deserve to be with him. His grace is that he continues to pursue and to bring his people home to himself. I think the big challenge we face in our lives, just on a daily basis, is that we have trouble remembering God's grace because we're forgetful creatures. And we know this because we forget our friends' birthdays, we forget our anniversaries. I have to tuck all these dates that just happened in my head because otherwise I'll be in trouble in a year. We forget where we parked our car. You walk into the room and you're like, man, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm looking for in my fridge. So we forget things. We know that. And I think that the trouble with sermon series is that you kind of get to the end and you're like, well, you know, now I know all about God's grace in the Torah. And you kind of tie it up in a little bow and put the book on the shelf, so to speak. And especially with a sermon series that's brief like this, it's really easy to do that. And so we want to try to push back against that tendency in our hearts. We want to learn how do we remember God's grace. 
And so for that reason, Deuteronomy 8 is, I think in a way, the perfect passage to close out this series because Moses is actually preaching to Israel and teaching them how to find God's grace in unexpected places. So his sermon would fit in our series on its own pretty well, actually. And so he's teaching them, as we're gonna see, he's telling them, look back these 40 years in the wilderness and see, remember, look how good God has been to you by his grace. And this is a great passage for us because a lot of us are probably feeling like we're in the wilderness for some reason or the other, so to speak. You know, maybe you've been trudging through joblessness for far longer than you would ever like. And maybe you are grappling with depression or you're in high school and the AP classes just don't let up and then college is getting bigger and bigger and bigger on the horizon. Or you're in college and graduation's getting closer and closer and closer and you still don't have a job lined up. And you feel like, when's this wandering gonna end? And relationships sometimes fall apart and things happen in life and we wonder, where is God's grace? How do I remember it? And so wherever we find ourselves this morning, whatever's going on in our lives, we need what Moses has to teach us today. Because the the key truth he's teaching us is that God continually calls us, his people, to remember that by his grace, he is with us during both the good times and the bad times. And so what that means is that in God's providence, there are no wasted years for his people, that his grace abounds even when we least expect it in our lives. And so let's turn to the text. We're gonna start by reading verses one through 10, and we're gonna see that God calls us to remember his grace during the bad times. So hear the word of the Lord, Deuteronomy 8, one through 10. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So as we, as we consider this sermon that Moses is preaching, just to set the stage, remember that Israel is on their way out of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They're on the eve of entering the promised land. And so at this point, everyone from the entire Exodus generation, those who had suffered under Pharaoh, they all except for Joshua and Caleb now lie dead in the wilderness. They have not made it through the journey. And yet God's promise stands. He said, your children will make it. I will bring them there. And Moses' last project before he dies is to encourage the Israelites before they go into the promised land, to equip them for the task that lies before them. Because imagine if you are this generation of Israelites. Imagine trekking through the desert wilderness for 40 years. We have trouble doing 40 hours in a minivan, even if there's a resort on the other side of the journey. 
They had 40 years of trudging through the hot desert sun. And for this generation, this was all they ever knew. So if you're a kid or if you're under 40 or even if you're over 40, imagine your whole, like that much of your life is in the wilderness. And you've heard about how bad it was in Egypt, but you also know that there was food there. And you haven't, you've heard that God is gonna take you to the promised land, but you haven't tasted and seen it yet. And so if you're in Israel at this point, you're probably feeling really cynical. You know what God has said, but you haven't seen it enough yet, maybe to satisfy you. And what you have seen, you wonder, where's the grace in that? And so Moses knows, he says, I've got to encourage them. And he's going to teach them to look back and see, no, God's grace has been with you the whole time. And it's going to keep getting better because he's going to continue to be with you. So notice then that the first thing he does is he helps them to reread, to look again at the story of their time in the wilderness. That's why he uses the phrase, he says, remember the whole way that God has led you in the wilderness. And he says it that way because he gets us. He knows that we tend to focus on only one part of the story. And the part we focus on is usually the bad, the ugly, the painful, the scary. Whatever doesn't go our way, that's what we talk about most. And you only have to look at Facebook or Twitter or whatever to see that that is true today. That's what we post about. That's what we think about. That's what fills our hearts. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, he said, we trace our joys in the sand, but we write our afflictions on marble. And so notice, though, how Moses goes about framing this story. Because he doesn't let it focus just on their hardship and suffering. And he does something beautiful. Because if you look closely at verse 2, He says that God led the Israelites during all 40 years of their time in the wilderness. That means it wasn't just wanderings. And word choice matters. If God led the Israelites, that means he was with them every single step of the way. And that alone is just a paradigm shift because it means that God had not abandoned them. That though they may have felt alone, though they may have been discouraged, they were not alone. And he's telling them, remember the story as it actually happened. And then in verse four, he points out these little things. He says, you took this for granted, but don't you remember that your clothes never wore out? For 40 years, your clothes, they sustained you in the wilderness. They covered you and protected you from the sun and the cold and cloudless nights. And he says, and your feet didn't swell. And if you've ever been hiking, you know that if you get blisters, it's awful. Every single step hurts. And so to have swollen feet for 40 years would have been the worst thing that could have happened to them. And yet, When your feet don't have blisters, you take them for granted. You don't think about like, oh, I'm taking a step now. And so his point is, look at that. The fact that that happened is evidence of God's grace in your life. And then as if those little miracles weren't enough, Moses then explains there's something bigger that was going on here and that's still going on. He's saying God has a purpose beyond and behind and throughout your suffering. He says that God was testing them to reveal and to refine what was in their heart, to know if they would obey him or not. And when we read Moses and we hear that, we might kind of scratch our heads and be like, well, this seems like a weird idea because God knows everything, doesn't he? And he does. And it's not like then that God lacked any knowledge, that he was like, well, I gotta throw you guys in the wilderness and we'll see what happens and maybe maybe you'll follow me, maybe you won't. He's sovereign, he knows. And the fact is his knowledge is so perfect that he not only knew what was in their hearts then, but he knew just how he needed to lead his people to transform their hearts, to equip them to be the kind of people that could serve him faithfully in the promised land. He knew that the wilderness time was what they needed to grow. 
And so that's important for us because if we're honest, as we say a lot at this church, we're horrible arbiters of our own sanctification. We don't wanna stretch ourselves. We set the bar low. That's why I like when I'm doing my homework, I'll break up my to-do list in all these silly little ways so I can itemize it and feel good for checking off each box. We want to feel like we've done something, but when we do that, we're not challenging ourselves. We're not growing And yet God knows our hearts. He knows the best way to challenge us, to grow us, to make us more like Christ. And so when it came to Israel, he knew that the wilderness journey was precisely what they needed. And we see that play out then in verse three because it says God humbled his people, then he let them hunger, and then he fed them. And so at no point did he abandon them. The whole thing he planned out, he was present throughout the whole thing. And he did it, though, not just because he's like, well, you guys need to hunger and suffer and sort of know how good you've got it, and I'll take food away so it'll taste better. He did it so he could feed them with what they really needed, his ever-faithful presence. That was what it meant for them to learn that man doesn't live by bread alone. God had to take their bread away and make them dependent on bread that he gave, bread that they never expected to receive, so they would learn that it was he who was sustaining them, that it wasn't just the storehouses in Egypt that kept them alive that there's more to life than existing, but that true life is found in his presence. And so for us, even though we don't always know the precise reason, like I don't know why this happened in my life, we know that there is a purpose behind it and that there is more than that, there is a father who loves us behind it and that he is using everything in our lives for our good and for his glory and that he uses things. Sometimes years down the road, you remember something. My dad used to tell me this all the time growing up. I was like, you know, I never knew why that happened, and then you did something crazy, and I was like, huh, I now understand, like, this happened in my life years ago so I could parent you better in that, or so I could have this experience and sympathize with my son and, and to care for him and to preach the gospel to him. And I think that's sort of a picture just of how long of a view God's sovereignty has and how when we get so short-sighted, we forget that he is with us and he has his purposes. But sometimes too though, it does get so dark that it's hard to look around and it's hard, we we may say like, I know that, I can read that in a book, I can write about it, I can say it, but it doesn't feel like it and when I look around, this seems so bad that I can't imagine how God, if he loves me, would let me go through this. And I don't see any end to my suffering. I think then it's really significant that notice that half of this first section is pretty much given to a description of how awesome the promised land will be. Moses says, look, you guys are going from the desert where you had to wait for God to bring water out of rocks and then there are gonna be brooks and fountains and water's gonna flow through the valleys. You're gonna go from having to pick up manna every morning and that uh, relying on that one day at a time to having bread without scarcity. And he's not contradicting himself and saying, oh yeah, now you can live by bread alone. He's saying, no, now that you know God's presence, you're ready for him to provide all these blessings for you. And also, yes, when times get hard, remember God has promised that he is taking you home. And so for us, when the hardships of life are grinding away and when the darkness seems to swallow us, we ought to remember where God is taking us. Like a lot of times we have trouble thinking about the future in America, we kind of either think like some sort of left behind, like planes are gonna fall out of the sky and that seems kind of scary, so I don't know if I wanna think about it. Um, Or we just think about tomorrow in our to-do list. And yet the biblical model is, as Paul says in Romans 8, like look, the sufferings of this world, they can't even come close to what you will have with your father in new creation when Jesus comes back. And so even when the times are at their worst, 
we can have hope in our Father because of what he's promised to us. Remembering his grace looks back, it looks around, and it also looks ahead to what he has promised to give us his people. And so this morning, it's worth asking, what has been or what is right now your biggest struggle or hardship or trial? And then how has God been gracious to you even in that? And that doesn't always have to be some major act of suffering. Sometimes it's just a little thing in daily life that you realize has made you bitter or dry. Um, and to be confessional, from, for me in my own life, um, a couple weeks ago, and Cameron, he asked that question in the Genesis 3 sermon. He said, so what are you calling good that is actually evil? And what are you calling evil that's actually good? And that question just kind of got under my skin and it was in my mind all week and I was getting really angry because I couldn't answer it. I was like, I'm not a like, perfect person. There's definitely something going on here. I need, I need to figure this out. And I had one of those weeks where you kind of go through and it flies by, but at the same time, it felt like an eternity. And as I was driving home from work at like 11.30 on Saturday night, the spirit kind of put the question back on my mind and made me realize I needed to think about the second half. What am I calling evil that is good? And I realized that for me, it was actually my job in food services. Because if I'm honest with you, a lot of times it feels like all my time goes to selling chicken and not just studying God's word in seminary and not just serving the youth and the people of our church. And I was getting really angry. And the Lord just kind of confronted me with that and was like, you see that you're calling this evil? And then he reminded me and said, do you see all the good things I've been doing for you through this job? Because you hate conflict and how many times have you had to deal with it in the past month? Because um, parents, I, I can only imagine, I'm on my way there, but teaching high schoolers to sell chicken and be polite at Chick-fil-A standards is not easy. <laughs> and, and I get impatient. Um, but I can see it's like, all right, you know, I'm not gonna learn that in the classroom. The Lord has been good to me in that. And you know, that's a, a simple example, but again, I pointed out to say that God's grace is around us and there's no time, whether too mundane or too bad or too harsh or too painful for us to remember his grace to us. We don't have to be cynics because cynics, they scoff at everything during hard times because they don't have any hope and they don't see any purpose to it. But as Christians, even when we don't understand what's going on and why it's happening, we can cry out to God we can say, Lord, what is going on here? Show me your grace. I don't see it yet. And we can do that because we have hope in his promises and we have faith in his presence that he is with us even now. So with that in mind, let's turn back to the text. We're now gonna look at verses 11 through 18 and we're gonna see that God also calls us not to forget his grace during the good times. So this is Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And so Moses, as soon as he elaborates on all these blessings in the promised land, then he launches into 
this call for Israelites, don't forget God's grace to you. And notice he connects it. He says, your forgetfulness is gonna be connected to your disobedience. As you forget about his commandments, you will forget about the one who gave those to you. And so he's saying, if you don't care about your way of life, if you don't care about worship and all these things, then you're gonna forget God. And that's important because it's important to recognize that Moses isn't talking about like the absent-mindedness again of like, where are my glasses? And they're on your head. And I've actually done that three times now. So that's, that's like anybody wears glasses, I guess. He's not talking about when our brains go kaput. He's talking about the diversion of our hearts, the death of our worship, when we go after other things, other activities, other idols, and forget about our God. And he was afraid that this, was happen, that this would happen because of verses 12 and 13. The theme there is that Israel's blessings were gonna be multiplied, that everything they had was just gonna blossom in abundance. They'll eat, they'll be full, they'll have good houses, cattle, wealth, possessions. Their life was about to be unimaginably good compared to what they had. And it's important, I think, to remember that Moses isn't saying that prosperity in and of itself is bad because if you jump down to verse 18, he says, look, God has given you all of this because of his promise. He said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And this was Israel about to become a great nation. But Moses is wise because even though the problem isn't with the blessings, the problem is with us and how we receive the blessings. As verse 14 makes clear, Israel was at risk of lifting their hearts up, of becoming proud of their accomplishments, becoming proud of making something of themselves after coming from nothing, proud of being an underdog, proud of achieving the American dream, we might say. And we know that danger. As, as Josh said, you know, I, my, actually my professor in seminary shared this goofy story yesterday. Apparently Bart Simpson, an episode of The Simpsons, has this prayer where he's like, uh, Father God, you know, um, thanks for nothing because we bought this food, it's ours, we cooked it, we served it, and uh, we're gonna throw it away, so thanks for nothing. And I was like, well, man, that's pretty blunt. But I think if we're honest, that's a lot of times sort of how we feel in our day-to-day lives. In a world of Walmart and drive-thrus where I can give you a 1,200 calorie meal in less than three minutes for less than 10 bucks, it's kind of like, man, you know, maybe, maybe God's like, actually, no, that one's punishment because it's gonna destroy your heart. Um, so who knows? But the point is that in our, in our world where we can buy food for a week, you know, a lot of countries in the world still, you buy food every day. It's more like the manna system than the Walmart system. In our world, it is hard to remember and it's easy to forget. And before we know it, if not with our lips, at least with our lives, we profess my hand and the power of my heart and my motives and my efforts. That is what has gotten me this paycheck. That's what's gotten me this food. That's what's gotten me this house. And we give no thanks to God. So Moses is trying to equip the Israelites to, to prevent them from slipping into this attitude. And that's why he goes on and says, look, don't forget, like you guys... You, you had to be protected from these serpents. You had to be protected from these scorpions. God had to bring water out of these rocks. Like, how could you get to this point where you forget everything that God has done? And yet, that's the question for us. How can we, who have been rescued from our sin and been washed by the blood of Christ, how can we forget that God is all around us? We Presbyterians who lift up the doctrine of sovereignty, how do we forget that God is gracious to us every day? And so I do, though, think we have to be careful here because in America, we'd like to jump to extremes. And sometimes you'll hear in our circles, like, man, it would be so much easier if I were a Christian, like in Palestine, if I were in poverty and persecution, because then, like, I wouldn't have all these stuff, all these things like Netflix with enough entertainment to bore my life away for us. Like, I wouldn't have that to distract me. That's 
pretty unbiblical to say like, oh, if my life were in poverty and persecution, it'd be easier to be a Christian because that's then to, to be thankless for our, our blessings still. When God blesses us with good things, we're not called to be stoics and feel bad about it. We're called to be generous. We're called to use those things for the glory of his kingdom. And ultimately, we're called to remember what our parents teach us at Christmas and birthdays every year. Say thank you. The song we sang this morning, 10,000 Reasons, is not hyperbole. We have more than 10,000 reasons, if we're honest, to thank God. And so a lot of times, if, if someone asks you, like, hey, how can I be praying for you? Or if you think, like, I don't know what to pray for in my life, saying thank you is a great start. Thank you that I woke up. Thank you that I made it through the night. Thank you for my job, for my family, for these clothes. And you could go on. You could walk through your whole house, your whole neighborhood. You could walk back through, your life, uh, through the years of your life and remember the 10,000 reasons that God has been good to you. And so ask yourself today even, how has God been good to you just this week? And can you give a specific example of his grace in your life? And I think that part about being specific is tough. We're gonna be like, you know, I'm thankful for my job or I'm thankful for my house. And as a starting point, I think that's good. But when you ask just about the past week, we have trouble. We have trouble identifying his hand at work in our lives. And I think a lot of that is sort of, we live in this American dream jet stream of just sheer busyness. And when we're asked how we're doing, we say, oh, I'm good, man, but I'm busy. You know, everything's been going on and I've had all this stuff. And you kind of see how I'm still speaking in vague generalities. You might not know what I'm talking about here. But ask yourself, how many times is that how we come across to each other, even here on Sunday, where we can't really tell the story of our lives and God's work in our lives? We just say, I'm busy. And so that's why the Sabbath truly is a beautiful gift that God has given us because it's an opportunity to put a check on the busyness because as so many of us know by our experience, if we don't put a check on our busyness, then it metastasizes into chronic forgetfulness and we can hardly ever find God's grace. And before you know it, we don't expect to find it in our lives. And it's not because it's not there, it's because we've forgotten. And so this day, even this Sabbath, It's not designed to be a burden or some sort of religious duty. It's designed to set us free, to break us out of the shackles of busyness and to set us free to see, wow, God is at work in this way in my life. I see it. And set us free so that we have the time to say, Lord, I don't see it right now. That takes time too. And to cry out and be like, Lord, would you show me? Would you use this day to refresh my heart, to remind me that I would not forget especially if if you're a student of any kind, it's hard. Um, It took me 16 years of school to kind of realize like, hey, I'm so tired all the time because I don't stop. And if you're a student, you probably sort of view your whole life like you're picking out classes, like, well, I could squeeze this one in here if I eat lunch on the way between these two classes. You just keep piling your plate full of stuff. And the whole system's rigged because it's designed to make you feel that way. But don't let that keep you from God. Don't let that make you forget his grace. College is a big deal. Jobs are a big deal. But even if you can just get an hour on Sunday or even another day of the week, if that's all you can achieve, do it. Because it will save your life. And it will show you how good God is to you. And then as we close out this text, we're coming to the last two verses, 19 and 20. And here we're gonna see then that at any time, we must never cheapen God's grace. It's so abundant, and yet it's so costly and so precious. And so let us finish out the word here. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, 
I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. As we read these two verses and as the heat turns off and it gets really quiet, we might be like, well, man, Moses, that's a great way to end with a downer there. And if you're really kind of putting all the pieces together, you might be cynical and be like, ah, we knew it. You guys couldn't get through five sermons in the Old Testament without God looking like a jerk. You know, where's that grace in the Old Testament now? Where's the grace in this warning? And before we approach that question, because it's a good one and we need to wrestle with it and we need to genuinely wrestle with it and grant its terms, remember verse seven, that God disciplines us as a father disciplines his child, that he loves us and that he's going to do whatever it takes to get us out of our sin and to get us into his presence because that is grace. And so an example is when you warn your kids, don't run into that busy street, like don't zip out of our parking lot and go into the middle of 41, you're not being mean. You know, if you say, you will surely perish if you step in front of that bus, you're not being over the top, you're just saying, hey, this is reality, kid, you gotta get used to it. You're reorienting them and their minds and their hearts to see this is how the world is. And that's what Moses is doing here. He's opening our eyes to reality. He's saying, look, this is seriously how ugly and how evil and how wicked your sin is. The flip side of that, as we'll see in a moment, is that, and this is yet how gloriously beautiful and seriously amazing God's grace is. And you may have noticed, as we've been working through this text, the key truth is phrased almost as an echo of traditional marriage vows that God is with us in good times and in bad, or in other words, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his people for a reason, because it reflects his steadfast love, his unending grace for his people. And I think it's helpful then to keep marriage in mind whenever we come, about, or come across a warning like this in scripture, because it reminds us of the reality, the gravity, and yes, the love and the beauty of our relationship with God. Imagine, for example, then, if we cheapened our spouse's love like we sometimes cheapen God's grace. So say I thought to myself, you know, I know that if I do this, I will drive Kate insane. I know that she doesn't like it when I do this. In fact, I know it's wrong and I know it's sinful, but I'm going to do it anyway. After all, I've got the ring. She's my wife. She's gonna forgive me because that's what wives do, right? Now, y'all are chuckling because I know I'm new to marriage, but Kate's staring at me now, and if I did that, I'd be in a whole load of trouble. And yet, don't you see that that is exactly what we do when we cheapen God's grace? We're saying, oh, you know, God, he's a forgiving God. Jesus saves sinners, so the bumper sticker says. And yet, we mechanize that, we cheapen it, and we say, he's God, he'll forgive me. That's what God does. And if that's what we're saying when we think about God's grace, then we don't get it. Because if God's grace is his presence with his people, then that is the exact opposite of sin. That's why grace isn't just unmerited favor. That's not why it's just forgiveness in a vacuum. It's a relationship. And so if marriage doesn't work that way, if human relationships don't work that way, we ought never think that we can just go around and sin willy-nilly and assume that God will just forgive us right before we die. That's not the gospel. The gospel is much better than that. Because as you read this warning, you might think, well, man, like, I feel like my heart has gone after other gods, so to speak, and I've been focused far too much on money, I've been focused far too much on my reputation, I've been focused far too much on this or that or the other thing, and I feel like I've just been running away. 
And if the warning startles you a little bit, that's actually a good thing because it means your heart is alive and it means the spirit is at work in you, convicting you. But you're not supposed to stop there because the critical point is this. The warning is not designed to scare us away from God. The point of the warning is to scare us out of our sins and to scare us so that we will run away from them and run, us, run back to God. When we read warnings like this, then we don't have to think God's being mean. In fact, this is the nicest thing he could do. If he's sovereign, and he is, he could have just smitten the Israelites. He never had to send prophets. He didn't have to have Moses say, hey, by the way, you know, all these years down the road, because this, by the way, is foretelling what happens when we uh, read about Daniel a couple months ago. That whole exile was because they didn't listen. And yet God was gracious time and time and time again. He warned them. He said, look, come back. See how ugly your sin is. Don't forget that that is death and that I am life for you and that I love you. Come back. Remember. And so for us, we come back to that bedrock question and we ask it all the time here because it is so important. How do you respond to the warnings that God gives us in his word? That is, which way do you run when you sin? Do you run away in fear, in shame, in thinking you've pulled one over on God? Or do you run back in humility and brokenness? Yes, but knowing that Christ has shed his blood, that he was lifted up on the cross to take your sins away. The gospel is not that grace is some sort of token or hall pass. The gospel is that grace brings us out of sin, brings us out of death, and brings us home to our Father who loves us. And so as we close out this sermon series, hopefully you've seen that that story has been going on since before the beginning of time, technically. And that all of God's word is designed to remind us to say, don't forget. Don't forget how bad sin is. Don't forget how bad you are without Christ. And yet don't forget how loved you are by God through Christ because of his grace. No matter what's going on in our lives, we have reason to praise. We have reason to worship, to celebrate God's goodness in the good times and in the bad And we ought not cheapen it. We ought to remember that God himself has paid that cost in full. And so even if your heart is heavy, don't let that keep you away. As you remember God's grace, as you remember the story, don't let yourself buy the lie that always comes in at that moment that says, but you don't deserve it. Because yes, we don't. But that's the point. The point is that even though we don't deserve it, our father pursues us and he pursues us over and over again and brings us home. And so from Deuteronomy 8 then, we learn that we must cling to God's promise and trust in his purposes during the hard times. There's no time too dark for God's light and his love to preserve us and to hold us fast. And then we must take time then to remember God's grace as the source of our blessings during the good times. Even today, just take time and look at all the ways God has been good to you and to your family and praise him. And then finally, we must guard ourselves against the cheap view of God's grace by remembering the cost that Christ has paid so that we can be with our Father. So much does he want to be with us, that Christ would be lifted up on the cross, that he would go, he would die for three days, and yet he would rise again. We know then that we are being led by our Father through the wilderness of this life, and yet the promised land of being with him in new creation for eternity, it lies in front of us. So let us remember that. Let us not forget it as we go into the Monday workforce and as we get sort of, I don't know, softened by the commute on 75. That's enough to grind away what you hear on Sunday. 
So pray now, I'll pray now that we don't forget, but that we remember God's grace day in and day out as he brings us home to be with him. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and we do ask that we would not forget that this series, Lord, would just encourage us to get in your word all the more, to see how beautiful this story is, that you love us, Lord, and that this story is, is massive and it's an epic and it's a good story that has an amazing ending that's coming. Lord, we pray that as you have us here on this earth, that you would use our time here well, that you would equip us to be your people, Lord, that your family would grow, that we would go out and share the, the good news of the costly grace that you offer us in Christ. Would you help us, Lord, to be uh, just quick to remember you when the times are bad, Lord, and, and help us not to forget in the good times. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We ask that that your word now would change our hearts and that by your spirit we would worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. And that the 10,000 reasons we have to be thankful for you will come pouring out through our voices now. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.